there's a bigger sense of global community that's trying to work towards these values that are anti-racist and that are more inclusive and that care more about people over profit. People are what is going to stay around and we have to look after each other, otherwise we'll have more division and people will be left behind. And, you know, what I or what our uh, project was about in the beginning was the question, what can we as a young generation actually do to preserve, to stabilize, to help construct this building even further, you know, because we are born into it without having done anything for it. With Brexit in the rear view, the decades-long discussion and debate about the role and purpose of the European Union has taken on a new urgency. What values do Brits and Europeans hold in common? What is Europe meant to people in the UK? And what does it mean for Europeans going forward? Last year at the Goethe Institute, we launched a special project around these discussions. Tell Me About Europe was a series of meetings in 13 different European cities that brought together intellectuals and creatives to debate and create around the theme of Europe, its past, present and future. The final meeting took place virtually in the UK in December, not long before the end of its European exit transition phase. This program was presented by the Goethe Institute and the German Federal Foreign Office during the German presidency of the Council of the European Union, taking place from July until December 2020. In this episode, we're continuing the conversation, asking two young intellectuals, one from the UK and one from Germany, to reflect on what Europe means to them. Alice Boyd is a composer, theatre maker, and environmental campaigner from the UK. Simon Strauss is a German historian, writer, and journalist. Both were born into the European Union and have used their work to think critically about what it means now and what it can mean. For Alice and Simon, the value of Europe is in the ability of its different cultures to come together in cooperation. They are both involved in the European Archive of Voices, an intergenerational project that collects the memories of individuals from all over Europe who were born in the first half of the 20th century. This includes not only EU member states, but also countries that have been historically or geographically considered part of Europe. Their aim is to illustrate the rich, complex and polarized histories of Europe, and that of the generation who rebuilt it after 1945. You're listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast. I'm Franca Forth. So grab a coffee or tea, settle in, and enjoy the perspectives of Alice Boyd and Simon Strauss. This conversation was recorded in autumn 2020. Hi, Alice and Simon. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Culture today. Tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from? So I'm Alice. I'm from the UK. I was born in Brixton in London and then I grew up in the countryside in Kent and I study geography at the University of Oxford but now I live in London where I work as a composer and a sound designer for theatre and film. Yeah, I'm Simon, I'm German, I was born in Berlin, I have to say West Berlin because 1988 the war was still there. So I grew up in Berlin and then studied in Switzerland and Basel and then in France. And then I went to, for my master's degree, I went to Cambridge um, to do ancient history, classics actually. And then I did a PhD in Berlin and now I'm working as a journalist and author in Frankfurt. What is your first memory of Europe? 
So my first memory of Europe is going to Monet's Garden in Giverny in France um, with my dad and my granny. I was probably about three years old or something like that. But I can't remember much about it. I can remember it being really beautiful and kind of uh, when we woke up in the morning, the birds singing outside my window. We'd always go to France or Italy for holidays and that's kind of where I started to grow an awareness of Europe and it was always associated with adventure and travel and good food and culture for me. How about you, Simon? Well, obviously I had all of the holiday um, experiences as well when I was young. Um, I, I don't know, I, I can't really remember as the same as with Alice because I... You know, my parents took me to Venice, I think, for like three months when I was two. And then we also stayed in France for a bit. But this traveling throughout Europe was so, it was such a normal thing to do for me, even as a child, that I didn't really reflect on that this would be Europe. Um, it was just spending time somewhere else, basically. Uh, but it always felt home and I didn't really reflect on it as being Europe or something as a concept. Actually, the first time I really started to think about what it means to be European or what actually Europe could mean was when I did my um, a year abroad and I went to New Zealand to a boys boarding school and I was surrounded by uh, a lot of farming kids, farming boys, and they hadn't seen a European in their whole life. And when I was there and I had to explain them where I come from, I mean, they all knew Germany, but um, they didn't really have had any uh, idea of what Europe is. So that was the first time I had to explain to them what European identity or what does it mean to be European. And um, for me, it was also yeah the moment when I started to reflect about uh about the European question, European idea. I mean, you say that often, you know, that you feel we are all nationalist <laughs> in some sense because of our language. But once we go abroad, once we're in America or even further away, then we start to feel European. How did you explain to them what a European identity is? Well, I obviously first started off by saying that like the Second World War, which in some sense pulled us apart and then together again, you know, in some sense, this is obviously the founding myth of the European Union as such. Um, but I, I also said that, you know, there's a difference between the American model and the European model. And this has something to do with culture and the acceptance of differences, um, obviously, especially when it comes to languages and and the local identities in some sense. So obviously, we, when you talk about Europe, you can't leave out the Second World War and all the devastating conflicts on this continent happened. But yeah, I would also always stress, and that's what I did at the time, that it's Europe is about acknowledging differences and in some sense admiring them also. You also mentioned national identity and said, you know, you also feel German or, or British for Alice maybe. Is there a distinct moment or how, when do you feel British, German, whatever, and when do you feel European or is it mixed and intertwined in your overall identity? I think for me, it's definitely mixed. It's, it's strange in, in relation to Brexit and stuff because sometimes you push against sort of being English or being British and... I think particularly learning more and more about the effects of the British Empire and colonialism and imperialism. When you learn about that stuff, you go, oh my goodness, like, what does it mean to have this identity? But in terms of when I feel British, I definitely, over the last couple of years, I've done a lot more holidays at home, so kind of staycations, because I haven't wanted to fly or I haven't had the time to take the train to somewhere in Europe. 
or I haven't had the money to do it. So I think I've been going to different places in, in the UK, like Wales or Scotland and different areas and seeing how beautiful those places are and meeting local communities as well. That's when I feel British because I, or that's when I kind of admire Britain for kind of the communities that do exist here. And then when I feel European, I definitely um, relate to what Simon was saying about when you travel outside of Europe or if you look at different kind of movies, if you look at American movies and yeah, you start to feel the sense of what it means to be European and what the different values possibly there are. And I think definitely with my work as a theatre maker, over the last year, it's starting to become more international. So recently I did a workshop with the Swedish arts funding body called Pro Helvetica with someone who was doing residency in Manchester in the UK and yeah, it's those little things that make you, that connect you to this wider community that it feels very exciting to be a part of Europe and to have a European identity. How about you, Simon? When do you feel German and when do you feel European? Or is that not so easy to distinguish? Well, I always feel both, I would say. I mean, obviously you can say when you watch a soccer game <laughs> and then you feel whatever, like you tend to feel more German than Italian, for example, when you when you have the two teams against each other. But no, I, I mean, I think for me, being an historian, there is no German history as such, for example. You know, there's always, or there's always a European influence on German history, to put it that way, you know. And, um, and that's, you know, there's no German culture as such. There's only interactions between different uh, spheres of cultural personalities or tempers or or, you know, the times kind of they give uh, and take from each other. So in that sense, yes, I mean, there's no uh, differentiation possible, I would say, between German and Europe. And obviously, as a human being, there's no difference you can make between you as a human being and whatever, a Chinese person, because you're human. And that's the that's the binding <laughs> the binding force. But I mean, I would always stress that you shouldn't, you know, blame the national um, identity neither, because it's completely natural that you grow up in a certain area and in a certain um, um, identity context and you feel responsibility because you have been growing up in this identity context. And obviously, I would say as a German, there's a special uh, responsibility you have also for your history. And so this is maybe the distinctive characteristic of the German, <laughs> that he has a special responsibility to look into history and to take it seriously, basically, you know. And the European, uh, you know, the European is everywhere. And uh, if you are uh, honest, you can't look at the world without noticing that there are European influences all over around you. Let's turn to your project, European Archive of Voices, which takes this discussion even further. You and several other young people have interviewed well-known intellectuals and figures from all over Europe who were born before 1945. You speak to them about topics such as gender injustice, war, the return of nationalism, and much more. Let's listen to two excerpts of the interview, which you, Alice, have led with Baroness Mary Gaudi. Baroness Mary Gaudi is a Labour member of the British House of Lords and is a global advocate for the rights of women and children. She works globally to promote gender equality, women's rights, and peace building. 
I was taught not in a cocky way, don't misunderstand me, but my parents brought me up that every door was open, mm. not to be the prime minister or to be the best teacher or to be the best, no, but you were taught that every door was open. You know, if you were going somewhere, you'd be welcome. So you just go in and say, hello, I'm X. You know, I was never brought up to say, oh, you can't go there. I've never felt ashamed of Europe. The only time I felt down and ashamed when we lost the referendum. Because I feel that we don't want to be an Isle of Wight. You know, that's what we could become if we're not careful. Have these people thought where they're going to get their fancy Italian food and all the rest of, you know, bits to make it? Or, more importantly, engineers, people that build our infrastructure. At the moment, we've got trouble about picking fruit. Alice, what are three things you take away from your talks which you might have never thought of before? So the first thing that I definitely learned a bit more about through talking to Mary Gaudi was more of an understanding of migration after World War II. I obviously knew that that happened, but Mary was talking about how in her community, and it was, it was quite interesting from her perspective because her parents are Irish so she was coming to England to live in London at a time where Irish people were being discriminated against in those communities. And there was things like there were signs when people went to rent houses or applied to jobs that said no, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. It's like insane to insane to think about that now. But yeah, about her kind of building these communities around her with People from all sorts of different backgrounds, whether they were Jewish refugees who had escaped to the UK or people um, from the Windrush generation. And I hadn't really thought before about what it might have been like as a child and a teenager growing up, kind of learning about all these new people and their backgrounds. So I found that very interesting. The second thing was about how the UK is... We're setting ourselves up for a lot of challenges with Brexit because we've been slowly defunding a lot of the skills and that we rely on EU workers to do. So she was talking about how there was a bricklaying college in the UK that has been closed and just these different institutions that used to train British people to do these jobs that now they are no longer trained to do that. But at the same time, we're effectively saying through Brexit, we don't necessarily want those workers to come over from the EU. And I think the pandemic has shown completely how important these workers are, whether it's care workers. Um, one of the things that with the, the proposed point system for migrants after Brexit, it didn't include care workers as a skilled worker, which when uh, I think it's something like 17% of care workers are foreign in the UK and just with what we've seen with coronavirus it's such an important job and the final thing is that she was saying that after this pandemic we have to move forwards instead of trying to go back to the way things were so we have to work collaboratively whether that's across Europe across the whole world I think hopefully a silver lining of the pandemic will be that we realise how important it is to work together. And how about you, Simon? You obviously set up with a group of people the whole European Archive of Voices. What are some of the things that you take away from it? Well, to be honest, it's very hard. We have 50 interviews um, and it's hard to, to learn one lesson out of it besides 
the obvious that it's so important, especially now in this time frame we have uh, to talk to these people born between before 45, because they're like witnesses for a complete different epoch, basically. That is obviously what's so fascinating. And also so challenging sometimes. And you can feel that when you listen through these interviews, you feel that these two things, there's the huge notion of responsibility in some sense, again, for like the young interviews feeling that there's a responsibility they have at this moment because they know that their partners will die in like, whatever, like 10, 15 years, they are dead. And that this moment is crucial in some sense. And on the other hand, you feel the big challenges they have from time to time to understand the logic, the mentality, yeah, the mindset of their interview, older interview partners or experienced, as we want to call them, experienced interview partners. Because obviously they were born in a complete different time. And it's much more different than the time of our parents, obviously. Because, as Alice also mentioned, the experience of the war is still there for them, even when they were a child most of the time. Um, but they have this huge impact in their mentalities, in their collective memory of the war. And this is throughout all the interviews, you feel that they're, in some sense, witnesses of the complete destruction of Europe. You know, They were born when Europe was completely burnt down in some sense, uh, psychologically, um, financially, politically, everything was gone. And then they kind of build it up again in the different countries, in their different spheres of work. They all, you know, put some small stones to build what we have today, the big cathedral, um, which is still obviously work in progress. It's still not complete. It will never be complete, but it's still a complete different stage of this building. When they were young, it was completely devastated. Today, it's there. We, as a generation, as a younger generation, can live in it. And, you know, what I or what our uh, project was about in the beginning was the question, what can we, as a young generation, actually do to preserve, to stabilize, to help construct this building even further, you know, because we are born into it without having done anything for it. So, The first step, um, we always said, to do something is not maybe to go on the streets and do a demonstration, whatever, against nationalism, uh, pro-European Union, but it's the first step is to realize the value, actually, of what we have there. And that is very, very important. That's what the project and all the interviews is about, is to show that Europe is not just the European Union. It's not just this bureaucratic system, which has its pros and cons and advantages and disadvantages. No, Europe is a huge It's a huge mixture of voices and experiences and narratives, basically. And to gather them and to put them together and to play them in some sense helps us to realize the value of uh, the European idea. And uh, what comes next uh, is obviously the question of uh, what is our responsibility to preserve it for further generations in some sense. So this is obviously, I would say, the lesson we learned to realize value and then to reflect on how preserve the value for future generations. Both mentioned Brexit and nationalism. And in a lot of these, in, in Brexit, for instance, a lot of the younger people voted to stay, whereas more of the older people voted to leave. So I was wondering, is skepticism of the EU a generational thing, you think? And what about your generation? Why? What is the EU like for them? I mean, it's definitely, it's very clear from the EU referendum that younger voters were more likely to vote remain. And I think it was, it was nearly three quarters of 18 to 24 year olds voted to remain. 
So I think, yeah, younger people in Britain are certainly more likely to think that immigration is better for British life and and I think have an interest in working and travelling and studying abroad and, and just all the benefits that being part of the EU brings us. Obviously, I can't speak for all young people, but I think there is anger around it. And I think especially now we have had so much unemployment and uncertainty as a result of the pandemic like I know for me I work in the theatre industry so it's been it's been very very kind of turbulent um yeah I think I was only 19 when the referendum happened um so I've sort of almost in my political awareness have always been aware of this question of the EU and and Brexit and it feels like Brexit's been in the news forever um so I think at the same time it's not necessarily an apathy but it definitely feels like what is you know what is this and what is the future going to look like it feels like we've been having mixed messages and confusion about it for so long so like will it mean that it's going to be harder to get jobs coming out of this pandemic or it's it's very unclear what it means. So I feel like for people my age, it's definitely, everyone's a bit tired, I think, probably. If I, if I may, I, I would like to jump in there because, I mean, um, that's very interesting what you say, Alice. Um, and I would obviously agree that um, it's clear that younger generations voted against Brexit if they voted. Because what is also a truth is that a lot of younger Brits didn't show up in the first place and didn't vote at all, you know. And so this is something I would call the problem of the democratic fundamentals in some sense. And I have the feeling our, you are even younger than me, but the younger generations, in despite of the older generations, I would say, they have a harder time to get enthusiastic about the fundamental democratic principles as, for example, voting and representation, political representation, not identity representation. That is obviously their biggest interest at the moment politically or ideologically but the political representation which the older generation has such fear of when you listen to the criticism even in our interviews the older generation has um, when it comes to European Union it's always the representation and the question of the legitimacy and I mean you, you can talk to you know hard left or left liberal people and they will always come up with this Question, I mean, what does the European Union as an institution represent? You know, it's not representing me as a citizen. So the interesting or, or challenging question is, is there a difference maybe between the generations in their identity as citizens? You know, what does it mean to be a citizen for um, someone who's 25 today and someone who's 85? These are interesting questions which always come up in the interviews as well. And I would say that this is really, um, yeah, that's a key, uh, a key question for the future also um, when it comes to the future of the European Union, because we need to change something in this European Union thing so that something like Brexit won't happen again in some sense, you know, because we need also as a younger generation make clear that there's more at stake as um, an institutionalized bureaucracy, you know, there's much more at stake when you talk about Brexit. It's not just the economy, it's also a whole um, mentality and the question of how do we meet each other, you know, how do we meet each other again after Brexit? How will I address you and all of these things? You know, we are one family and now it's a, uh, kind of breaking apart. So, yeah, and I think the, the, the question of citizenship is a very important one in this. What are you both most afraid of post-Brexit? I think I'm uh, scared that the UK will be, I guess, more closed off, more racist, less tolerant. Um, I think the rise of 
populism is quite scary and I think it's a result of austerity and and not funding welfare and education and, and I think it definitely came off the back of the decade of conservative you know all the austerity in the UK and I really yeah it's again back to the pandemic I feel like it has to be a moment where we decide that actually people and the planet is the thing worth investing in and we shouldn't be just making profit for profit's sake but to actually go back into our communities and yeah into making the world a better place but yeah I'm just I'm scared that that won't happen and I'm scared that we'll come out of this pandemic in a financial crisis and we'll have Brexit to deal with and we'll make the decisions that might seem like the decisions that are best for British jobs and things like that but actually end up in the long term creating quite a dangerous culture of division so I'd say probably that. <laughs> well to be a little bit cynical I would say as a pro-European my biggest fear is that nothing will really change after Brexit. Because if that happens, if, you know, everything goes kind of normal, maybe a little bit of, you know, bumps here and there and economy problems, but overall in five years, you know, no one really thinks about it anymore. Then we will really have a problem because then other countries will follow the example. And then, you know, Hungary, Poland, uh, Italy, Spain, they will all in some sense, question the benefits, basically, of this European Union. So although that's, like I said, a little bit cynical, because obviously it would be, it would be horrible if that will happen, what Alice just told us. But from the European perspective, obviously, we have to take into account that this is a testing moment for this whole community, if it sticks together or not. And if the Brexit will, in the end, be, you know, a normal situation and everything what the the conservatives or, or, or johnson people said will in some sense be true because they said nothing really which is it will be better maybe it won't be better but it will be kind of the same you know then like i said uh, we have big problems of how to legitimize the european union again that is my biggest fear that this is the start of the destruction of this community because although i am personally not someone like i said before who is When I talk about Europe, I don't necessarily think about the European Union. You know, I differentiate between these two, between Europe as an idea and the European Union as an institutionalized reflection of this idea. But I always say, you know, you can't have faith or religion without the church. And that's the same thing. You know, you can't have Europe without the European Union. That's my belief. So that's why I think that it's really dangerous, the Brexit moment, which we're facing. Now. Well, I do hope for Alice <laughs> and all the people I hear that it won't be... Yeah, it won't be destroying lives, but I do see Siemens' point. It's very tricky. Alice, you've mentioned um, the COVID-19 pandemic. What potential does the EU and maybe more Europe have for you in times of the ongoing global COVID-19 crisis? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a strange time where in order to help each other, we have to stay apart. So in some ways, it's been, again, another silver lining has been getting to know your lo local communities, at least I've definitely found that when we've been in lockdown or even in this time now with the travel, you have to quarantine if you go to the list of countries. 
I've definitely been, again, more rooted in my local community and um, exploring the local area, which has been a really nice thing. But definitely the pandemic has shown that we need, that there's been a huge need for rapid collaboration and that the way that scientists and the scientific community and the medical community have had to, you know, really fast track all the processes in order to try and find a vaccine and and different medical solutions to the pandemic. Yeah, so I really hope that this again shows that there is such a huge place for collaboration and not having restrictions to uh, the flow of academic work and and say things like the Erasmus programme and hopefully there's a real opportunity for all countries across Europe and and within the EU to work together and and disseminate information and medical findings as quickly as possible. I mean, obviously, one can always be optimistic in a time of crisis because you can hope that this you know shared experience of being vulnerable leads us to a change of mindset. Obviously, um, I mean one had the feeling before COVID um, that the only thing which can really hurt us is economy. Economy and terrorism, basically. But COVID shows us that there's more, <laughs> actually, there's more and even broader fears we can have and that we are all in this together in some sense. You know, that, that's what I mean. There's an existential option here that we think back of what we really are. We are humans um, and we are vulnerable. We are attackable. And um, it's not all in our hands. That is something I personally learned, basically, you know, um, growing up in a time of huge optimism of the power of humankind in some sense, you know, uh, we can do everything. And, uh, you know, economy is only there to help us to get richer. And COVID, you know, in some sense helps us to reflect again on, yeah, the philosophical um, dimension of what does it mean to be a human being, not uh, rich or poor or uh, what color your skin has or, or where you come from, but what does it really mean to be a human being? And um, and obviously, as Alice said, um, the European feeling wasn't there in the beginning when we look at uh, how Italy struggled very, very hard in the beginning. And we all, in some sense, um, we all looked away, you know? I mean, the state leaders at least did. And uh, and also we, we I mean, looking back, it's incredible now that we still thought, I mean, in Germany, we still thought in February, uh, okay, that's an Italian problem in some sense, you know? We had the Berlinale, the film festival with like hundred thousands of people and we, we had the feeling it won't come to Germany. So hopefully this changes that we have the feeling that, ah, it's over there, it's not here. No, these things kind of happen to all of us and we need to come out of this stronger as a community. Um, that's at least what I hope a younger generation which shares this experience now, because I think we shouldn't underestimate the power of this experience. You know, it's uh, someone who grows up and even, you know, when you're at school now, you know, you will never forget that this year was the COVID year. And this is what you will tell your grandchildren probably, that there was this epidemic when you were uh, whatever, 15. And um, yeah, so like I say, I think it's a distinctive uh, moment and the hopes I have that it builds up our community stronger. You just said this is the power of this experience. Do you think this experience can create a feeling of a common European identity? You know, the problem with this is that when we talk about the common European feeling, then the second 
sentence or thought is always money. We arrive at a point where money is so important that it's also apparently the solution for the European question. So, I mean, as you know, the debates about how should we structure um, the European financial system in some sense, you know, I mean, should we have a taxation which is kind of just for all the European uh, countries and how should we have a transfer union and all of this? I think this is part of the problem rather than the solution because, like I said before, in some sense, the biggest uh, mistake our father generation Not the grandfather or grandmother generation, but our father and mother generation did is that they accepted the privileged uh, situation or uh, of economy, you know, that uh, that economy ruled the world, you know, Thatcher, in some sense, it's economy stupid. So this is it goes over the whole of the 70s and 80s and 90s and even till 2008, I would say. And what COVID now, I mean, I would say that there's a real um, opportunity here because what COVID showed was that for once, I would really say in the last 40, 40 years or so, politics, state, the citizens in this sense were more powerful than economy because we did the lockdown. You know, we shouldn't underestimate this moment uh, that politics showed stronger than economy. People always tend to say, okay, politics is always just, uh, you know, following what the economy wants and the economic leaders did and stuff. No, here you can see that uh, politics proved to be stronger. And this shared experience, I would say, could be the beginning, the beginning of a new realization what European um, uh, citizenship, European consciousness could mean. It means first and foremost, not an economic thing, but it's a political and cultural thing. And it's a discourse thing. Uh, to be European means to have an open discourse, to debate, you know, not to have a top-down uh, system of what is right or wrong or, uh, you know, a Chinese way of doing things. We have an open kind of debate culture, which leads to our political decision-making. And that's what I'm really, really fond of is, is the hope that economy will, uh, in some sense, has to step down of his uh, huge uh, kingship. <laughs> Would you agree, Alice? Yeah, and I think, you know, kind of further than European, I think the pandemic and, and particularly with, you know, Black Lives Matter, with how much more public that movement and how much more that saw the limelight then I feel that yeah there's a bigger sense of a global community that's trying to work towards these values that that are anti-racist and that are more inclusive and that care more about people over profit or or you know profit is for people I feel that the pandemic has kind of allowed for these messages to come through more and because we have been in this insecure time economically. Uh, you realize that people are, you know, with what is going to stay around and we have to look after each other. Otherwise, if, you know, we'll have more division and people will be left behind. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. You've been listening to Alice Boyd and Simon Strauss speaking about their experiences of Europe and European identity. You can find out more about the European Archive of Voices, Tell Me About Europe and other programs which took place during the German EU Council Presidency 2020 
by visiting goethe.de slash UK slash Europe. Next time on the podcast... Do the Germans do it better and what lessons do they actually have to teach or rather have they learnt? In posing these questions, I hope to spark a different kind of debate about the country, not to suggest superiority, but to redress the balance. In the next episode, British author John Kumpfner gives us a preview of his provocatively titled new book, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country. The Goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany. We foster international culture exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. At the Goethe Institute London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature, and much more, both on-site and online for audiences throughout the UK and worldwide. You can find out more on our website, goethe.de slash London. For this episode, we worked with Better Lemon Creative Audio and executive producer Hannah Hathman, hosting research and narration by myself. Till next time, I'm Franca Forth.